Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. All right, good morning, good morning. Good morning. Um, I am excited to be with y'all this morning. To open up God's word, um, I want to say thank y'all because y'all did raise a good, a good woman and Bree, a good wife. Um, but I did have to, have to snatch that up. Had to snatch it up. Um, this is my first time preaching somewhere that's not Second Press. Um, that's a first. First time preaching in jeans. Uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> New Balances. Uh, you know, getting ready this morning was a lot faster than uh, than normally is. Uh, this morning, we're looking at First Peter chapter three, um, verses eight through twelve. And as you turn there, I just want to give some context for for the letter as a whole, but for our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. So, the First Peter is written by the apostle Peter, and he's writing this letter to Christians churches in Asia Minor who are experiencing uh, intense persecution for their faith, right? These believers, they are are being isolated by family and friends, and they are, um, they've been deemed dangerous by the government because they have not, or rather they don't see the emperor as, as their true king. They have a different kingdom and a different king that they have pledged their allegiance to. And Peter is writing to these Christians to encourage them, but to also instruct them. So if you have your Bibles open, the very opening of the letter, Peter refers to these Christians as elect exiles. Now to us that sounds strange, but to them this would have been encouragement because elect exiles means that you are chosen by God and that this, this land, this nation, this world is not your true home. And then in chapter 2, starting around verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 7, Peter begins to instruct these readers on what it means and what it looks like to live life as an elect exile. And he gives them a couple examples as, as um, just kind of specific people groups. And looking at them as a case study for how do, the, how do you live out your identity as a citizen? He calls all citizens to be submissive to authority. Now, how does it, what does it look like to, to live as an elect exile as a slave? He calls them to be obedient to both good and evil masters. And then what does it look like? to be in a let exile as a husband or a wife, and how do, you, how do you relate to one another? And then we get to our passage this morning, verse 8, chapter 3. And Peter briefly takes our attention away from the outside world and how we relate to the outside world, those who are not believers, those who have not been redeemed, and he draws, draws our attention to ourselves. Now, the passage that is going to kind of frame our time is, is, is uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The question is, if we have truly been born again, if as a body of believers we have truly experienced a, a rebirth, then what are those birthmarks that should identify us? And what I think we'll see in our passage this morning is that there's, there's two birthmarks that should identify us as being born again. The first is that we should be marked by grace and that we should be marked by transformed living. So I'm going to read this passage again, not because it wasn't read right, but because when I practiced it, I read it. So I'm going to read it again, and then I'm going to pray us in, and we'll, we'll dive in. So beginning in verse 8, chapter 3, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning to gather as your people uh, to worship you. And God, as we consider your word, would you illuminate your word? Would you open up our eyes to see your truth? And we'll be compelled by your love, Lord, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, me and Bree, we've been married for almost three years. And um, as I was reflecting over our marriage and um, just our time together and just how much the Lord has grown me and purified me, pruned me, Tim, pruned, cutting stuff away, and, um, and just how much the Lord has grown Bree in so many areas. And I just thought, um, man, what, what area has the Lord grown her the most in? And it's been cooking. Um, the Lord has truly grown Brie and cooking, not just in quality. You know, you get your reps, so you get better. But in quantity, right, we, we cook, well, Brie cooks a lot, and I'm grateful, very grateful. Um, but with that means a lot more grocery store runs, which is a great trade-off. I'm, I'm more than happy to go to the grocery store and, and, and get whatever. So recently this week, she was cooking this crock pot crock pot situation and uh, needed some, some sort of sauce. Um, and so she said, hey, Brad, can you go to the store, get, get the sauce? I said, sure, I'll go. And um, I had never bought this sauce, didn't know what the sauce looked like. So like a good husband, I called my wife and I asked for help. I said, Bree, look, can you help me find the sauce? What does the sauce look like? Now, mind you, right, I'm, I'm staring at this shelf with literally like 5,000 different sauces all kind of different colors, right? So I'm in need of a pretty detailed answer, and Brie gives me a very detailed answer. She says, uh, it's red. Um, it's red. So 
I'm not going to share my internal reaction, but I share that story to say that sometimes that's how we want to describe what it means to be born again. That if we took what it meant to be born again and put it on the shelf of life right next to uh, all the other religions and different worldviews, sometimes we're tempted to just say, well, to be born again, it's, it's the red one. But the problem is, is that the Bible doesn't describe, describe it that way. The Bible gives us very clear and distinct markers for what it means to be a born-again community of believers. And one of those markers is grace, being marked by grace. Looking at verse 8, Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, before we consider what uh, being marked by grace means, let's first consider what is grace. If you have your Bibles, and if you can actually find this place, Titus is very, it's a very short book, so it can be hard to find. But Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, Paul isn't saying uh, that everyone's going to be saved. This isn't universalism. But he's saying that when grace appeared, that the opportunity for all people to be saved was offered. So for, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. For the grace of God has appeared. When did the grace of God appear? The grace of God appeared in Jesus. Jesus was the embodiment of grace. And that passage teaches us that that grace is what saved us and is what is saving us and is what will save us. But that passage also teaches us that grace doesn't just save us, but grace transforms us to look and to live more like Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, if we are saying that we have received the grace of God, that we have experienced the grace of God, and yet our lives look no differently, we have to ask ourselves, have we truly experienced the grace of God? So with that in mind, we look back at our passage, and Peter gives us a list of five ingredients that any church, including the Avenue, including Second Press, any church, these five ingredients must be at work for that church to be a grace-filled church. The first ingredient we see is unity of mind. Now, what does it mean to, be, to have unity of mind, or if you're reading the NIV, to be like-minded? With a, a church this size, I'm just looking around, the diversity in, in race, diversity in socioeconomic statuses, the, the diversity in political affiliations, the, the diversity in uh, theological uh, positions, 
with all that diversity and differences, how could we ever have unity of mind? Now, if you ever worked on a team, um, let's just call it what it is, with, with type A people, you know, God bless type A people. We need God, uh, type A people in the body of Christ, you know, uh, amen. Um, it got to get done. But if you've ever been on a team with more than one type A person, it's hard. You know, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to be on a team with more than one agenda. It's not necessarily a recipe for success. If you, if you uh, keep up with uh, NBA basketball, then you may be familiar with uh, Gordon Hayward. Gordon Hayward recently, he was on a podcast. And the podcast host asked him a question about his time on the Boston Celtics in 2017-2018. And he asked him a question, why couldn't y'all live up to your potential? Now, if you go back and look at that roster, I mean, it was, it was stacked full of talent. And the, the host asked him, what happened that prevented y'all from living up to your fullest potential? And Gordon Hayward said this. We just had too many different agendas. All the young guys wanted to prove that they had come into their own. The new star player that we just brought in, he's trying to prove that he could still get it done. And then even Gordon Hayward said himself that he was trying to prove that he was worth the contract that he had just signed. All of these guys are on the same team, wear the same jersey, they're all Celtics, and yet there was no unity of mind. Now, when we say unity of mind, we aren't saying that everyone has to be the same. Everyone on that team had different giftings, different skills. Everyone played a different position. And it's the same way in the body of Christ. God has gifted each of us uniquely. And God has called each of us to serve his church in different roles and different positions. But the question is, Amongst all the differences and, unique, and the uniqueness of the body of Christ, what is there to, to unite our minds? And the answer that Peter gives us is grace. In chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amongst all the diversity in this room, the one thing that can unite our minds is that all of our hope is set fully on the grace that we need today. Like, we, we need that grace today, but especially when Christ returns. That is what unites our minds. Now, it's important to remember that that Peter is writing this not to individuals, but to churches in Asia Minor. And that's important because that reminds us of just how vital it is for us to be committed to the local church. Being, having your hope set fully on the grace of God sounds great in theory. Everyone, I would hope everyone in here would say, yes, let, let's do that. But we also have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we have the rest of the week. And we all know how hard it is to keep your hope set fully on the grace of God and not your career 
or your finances or, or politics or fill in the blank. But it's when we come to corporate worship and we have the call to worship that reminds us why we're here. We're here to worship God. And it's when we have the, the confession. And after we confess, we are reminded that we are, have been divinely pardoned by the grace of God. And it's while we're singing that the Lord is worthy to be praised. And it's as the, the word of God is preached during all of that, the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of his people to draw their hope back onto his grace. And then, you know, there's sometimes where we just need, we just need to be corrected. It's sometimes where we, we've bought what the world has been selling us. And the world is always selling us that, or is the world is always tempting us to hedge our bets. To yes, yes, put, put some of your hope on the grace of God, but invest in your 401k, which is, which is good. Have a Roth RA. Hey, put some of your faith and your, your hope in the grace of God, but you better be putting some hope in these other areas. And we, in moments like that, we need brothers and sisters to step in and to remind us of the truth. Look quickly here at the other ingredients that, that Peter mentions. He mentions sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart or compassion. Now, the original readers in Greco-Roman society, they would have saw those, those phrases, and they would have automatically assumed that he is referring to the, the type of relationship that you have towards someone in your family. Now, these words are describing a a kinship, a type of obligation that you show someone who is actually in your family. And as those who have received the spirit of adoption that has united us to Christ as joint heirs and has brought us into the family of God, we have an obligation to one another as brothers and sisters. Now, it is, it is good to, to be friends. Right. It's even better to be, to be best friends, to have, a B, to have a BFF. But everyone has heard this phrase, blood is thick in the water. Blood is thick in the water. Now, the blood we're talking about isn't just any regular blood. It's the blood of the lamb that has, has cleansed us. And it's the spirit of adoption that has brought us into the family of God that compels us by love and compassion for one another to correct each other when we see each other walking out of step of the grace of God. And it is that same love and compassion, it's that same grace that compels us to have sympathy for one another. When I say sympathy, and when Peter says sympathy, he isn't just referring to feeling bad for someone or having pity for someone. But this type of sympathy is the same sympathy that Christ shows us. In Hebrews, the writer tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Meaning that when you mourn, I mourn. And when you rejoice, I rejoice. Because I have been compelled by the grace of God 
and because I want to show you brotherly love because we have all been brought in to the family of God. As the avenue seeks to do ministry in this community and push back the kingdom of darkness and to repair what is broken, the effectiveness of your ministry will only be to the level that you are willing to yield to the grace of God in these areas. But there's one more mark that, that should mark any community of born-again believers, and that is the mark of transformed living. Looking at verse 9, Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Before we get to that, look again to just right above that, towards the end of verse 8. Peter has called us to, to be unified and to behave like family, but he's also called us to have a humble mind. Well, what does that mean, to have a humble mind? Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 8, Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We do not get to define humility. And culture definitely doesn't get to define humility. Humility has already been defined in the person of Christ. And the way that Jesus defines humility is dying to yourself. Uh, recently, I was uh, meeting with a friend, and we've been meeting for a few months. And over the past month, we've been talking through uh, race and white privilege and everything that comes along with that conversation. And he's white, I'm black, so uh, it's a very interesting and challenging conversation. Um, both of us have said challenging things to one another. And recently he shared with me probably something uh, any pastor, every pastor would love to hear. He said, you know, I've realized that I hold so tightly to my opinion. And I want so badly to be right and to be heard and have my opinion, my opinion valued. But I've realized that sometimes I just need to shut my mouth and be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I said, I said, that is nothing but the spirit of God at work in you. And if we were all to be honest, what he said is exactly how we feel. We all cling tightly to our own opinions. We all desire to be heard, to be right. And if we're going to be humble, it takes the work of the spirit in our hearts to bring us to that point. Would that be true of all of us? That in response to the grace of God, 
that we would lay our opinions and our preferences and our privileges at the altar. And then Peter calls us, looking at verse 9, that that grace of God should should lead to transformed living. That it should lead to a life that looks more like the grace that you have received. So the question of if you've, I mean, if you've been to college or if you've lived longer than 10 years on earth, well, probably like five, right? When we're growing up, we're all asking, what do I want to be when I grow up? When you graduate high school, what's next? When you graduate college, and if you're a Christian, the question of what is the Lord calling me to? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to, am I supposed to go to this school or that school, leave, live in this neighborhood or in that neighborhood? Am I supposed to date this person or that person? I don't know. But Peter, how he answers the question of calling is challenging. In chapter 2, Peter says this, chapter 2, verse, verses 20 to 21, Peter says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, to what? To suffering for doing good and enduring it. Why? Because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in his footsteps. So if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, Peter has made your calling in life very simple and very clear, that you are called to suffer and to suffer for doing good and to endure it. But in verse 9, we also see that we're called to be a blessing. And that is what Jesus taught his disciples in Luke chapter 6, to to, uh, do good to those who hate you and to bless those who curse you. And if you do so, you will be blessed. And now the blessing that Peter is talking about, it is conditional. I know that that feels weird to say that, that Peter is saying that anything associated with God is conditional because we're saved by grace. But it is conditional, but it's not earned. It is conditional, but it's not earned. Our blessing, those who insult us, does not earn our blessing from God. And we see this again in chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says, prepare your minds for action and being so reminded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. The grace that will be brought to you, not the payment for works that you've done. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, that you are being kept and protected by God's power through faith. Not by your works, but through faith. And then in verse 4, Peter says this, that you've been born again to live in hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. This blessing that Peter is talking about is not earned, it's graciously given, it's inherited, it's not merited. So what does that mean for us? How do we get to this point where we are actually able to to bless those who do evil against us? Those who receive this blessing, this inheritance, 
are those who have been born again. And those who are born again who set fully their hope on the grace that is to come, they are able to bless those who do evil against them because their greatest hope in life, all of their hope in life, is set on God not repaying evil for evil with them. Their greatest hope in life is that when the, when the Lord returns, then instead of judgment, they will receive grace. And those who have been born again have set their hope fully on that grace. Looking at verse 11, they turn away from evil and they do good because they're being compelled by the love and grace that they have received from the Lord. And those who have set their hope fully on that future grace that is to come, they seek peace, they seek shalom. They pursue a vision for their community where every place thrives in every way, where nothing is broken and nothing is missing and where their neighborhoods are redefined and reimagined to more fully reflect the glory of God. That is what you have been called to, brothers and sisters. To be marked by grace. To set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. And to have your lives transformed to reflect the grace that you've received. It was May 7th, 1945, and uh, it was just hours after Germany had officially surrendered to the Allied forces. Gerda Wiseman was 20 years old and weighed 68 pounds when two American soldiers found her in an abandoned factory that housed uh, Holocaust survivors. And one of those two soldiers that found her was Kurt Klein. And he, too, was a fellow Jew. And as Gerda was being nursed back to health, Klein, day after day, was by her bedside. And over time, the two began to get to know one another. And Klein would listen to her as she would mourn the loss of her friends. He would sympathize with her. And then over time, they would begin to share jokes together. They rejoiced together. Now, once uh, the army, the Allied forces, uh, decided to return control over back to the Russians, Klein arranged for Goethe to be moved to an area in Germany that was still occupied by the Americans, so that they could continue to, to see one another. And as time passed, eventually uh, it was time for Klein to return back to America. And what he had been putting off for so long, he eventually had to confess out of fear that he would never get the opportunity to do so again. So over this time, uh, Klein had fallen in love with Gerda. And so Klein eventually mustered up enough strength and courage. And he went to Gerda and he said, don't you understand that I love you? And I want to marry you. Now, both were relieved that the other felt the same about them. And so Klein left Germany 
and went to America and began to work on how he could get Gerda back to the States. And with no cell phones or email, the two had to write letters. They had to write love letters to stay connected. And in one of those letters, Klein wrote, let me bridge time and space to be with you. And in that same letter, Gerda, Gerda responded, I let my thoughts of the joy that lies ahead envelop me. Brothers and sisters, I hope that through worship this morning and as the Lord's word was preached, that you were reminded that the eternal God bridged time and space to dwell with his bride. And as we all fight to be marked by grace and transform living, will we let our thoughts and joy and grace of the future there is to come envelop us? Amen.